Hi everyone, I'm Gunnar Hauser, and welcome to another episode of Ancient Weirdness. The topic I'm going to be covering today is an idea that comes out of religious tradition in the ancient Western world, but it also relates to a number of very interesting cultures. This is the concept of Gog and Magog. Now, this idea generally relates to concepts of an apocalypse, an end of the world. The names appear in several passages of both the Old and New Testaments, but with very little consistency. Very first mention is in the book of Genesis, actually, where there is a kind of catalog of various tribes that the ancient Hebrews were aware of. Sometimes it's called the Table of Nations. Gog is not mentioned at all. There's just a reference to Magog as an individual, a son of Japheth, who is said to have been one of the sons of Noah. Neither of the names show up again until the book of Ezekiel, which was composed during a time called the Babylonian Exile. After the Babylonians captured Jerusalem, sacked the city, and destroyed the first version of the temple. They then forced a large number of the Hebrews who inhabited the region, most likely the upper classes and educated and skilled people, to move to an area right outside of Babylon. The book of Ezekiel contains many strange passages, including the famous vision that he has of a storm cloud in the sky containing the four living creatures, each with multiple faces, angelic, human, and animal. This is the kind of thing that people who are devotees of the ancient astronaut conspiracy theory stuff are so drawn to. There's also the passage where God commands Ezekiel to bake bread using human dung as fuel. Yes, it's in there. Look it up. Chapter 4, verse 12. Anyway, to return to Gog and Magog, things have changed pretty dramatically. Gog is the name of a person who is from a group or a nation or an area called Magog. So Gog is said to be the leader of two different groups, Meshach and Tubal, which seem to be regions of Anatolia, or ancient Turkey. And Gog is one of the leaders of a coalition of different tribes that are described as enemies of the Hebrews. And Ezekiel is predicting their downfall, saying that hooks are going to be put in their jaws and they're going to be dragged by the power of God. He also talks about vultures feeding on their dead soldiers that it's going to take seven months for them to bury their dead after a major battle, and that fire is going to rain down on the region of Magog. Now, there's also reference in the book of Revelations. Both Gog and Magog are mentioned, but this time they are names of different groups of people. These tribes are going to be among the groups that make an alliance with Satan, who's coming out of the end of his thousand-year imprisonment. So they are nations from the four corners of the earth, according to the account. And they're very numerous. They're described like sands on a seashore. But they're going to be destroyed by divine fire. We also have a collection of writings that are very obscure to people today, especially in comparison with anything biblical. These are known as the Sibylline Oracles. The name comes from the Sibyl, a female oracle or prophetess, 
Now, there are actually a number of sibyls scattered around the Mediterranean world that are attested in ancient times, but the one we're talking about here is known as the Hebrew sibyl, or sometimes called the Persian sibyl, the Babylonian sibyl, or the Egyptian sibyl. Are you confused yet? Good, because I'm as confused as you are. But these so-called Sibylline oracles, we think, were actually products of the Jewish population in Alexandria, Egypt. They're written in Greek, and they were collected together by an unknown compiler in the 6th century AD. In the third book of Sibylline oracles, which they think was produced in Alexandria during the reign of King Ptolemy VI, Gog and Magog are mentioned, again as nations or groups of people. But in this case, the geography is very different. Gog and Magog are inhabitants of Ethiopia instead of Anatolia. It's also predicted that they're going to experience disaster, that there'll be a huge outpouring of blood. The Sibylline Oracles are just part of a large group of writings that were produced from the interaction of ancient Jewish people and the ancient Greeks. And there's a number of other really strange writings that you could group together with them that talk about events before the flood that also include monstrous characters. In the Books of Enoch and Book of the Giants, you have the description of the Nephilim. The Nephilim are giants that are born of the mating of angels, known as the Watchers, with human women. And the Nephilim are described as cannibals. They exhibit violent and perverse behavior. So God gives them a couple opportunities to repent in the Book of Giants sends prophetic dreams to some of their leaders right before the flood, but most of them stay defiant, so they ended up being victims of the flood. But according to a few statements in the Old Testament, one of them survived, and his name was, guess what, Og, a king of a place called Bashan, of a tribe called the Amorites. He is supposedly killed in battle against the Hebrew army led by Moses, but there are several references in Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Joshua to Og, and he was supposedly extremely tall, slept on an iron bed nine cubits long, which translates to just over 13 feet. Now, that may not have any direct connection to the stories of Gog and Magog, but it points out an idea of creatures, and we're going to see this characterization of those who live beyond a protective wall that gets connected to the Gog and Magog legend later on. Now, there's a number of ancient tribes that we can connect to some of these stories, and it also relates, believe it or not, to Alexander the Great. Going back to the early Iron Age, around the time that the biblical accounts would have probably first been put to writing, we have a group called the Chimerians. They'd be referred to as the people of Gomer in the Old Testament. Gomer being listed as one of the allies of Magog in Ezekiel. Now, this is a really shadowy ancient tribe in the sense that we don't have any depictions of them in art, we don't have any archaeological evidence that we can definitively tie to them. But historians today think that they were from somewhere around the area of the Caspian Sea, that they lived in these steppes or grassy plains just to the north of that sea. But they seem to have moved into Anatolia in the 8th century BC. They attacked a kingdom called Urartu in 714. Urartu might actually be seen as the progenitor of ancient Armenia. The king of Urartu, Rusha I, fled when they attacked and is said to have later taken his own life. Now, the further south they advanced, the more they came into conflict with a powerful empire that was forming in the Middle East, that of the Assyrians. And there were a number of Assyrian kings that fought against the Chimerians. 
Sargon II defeated them in 705, but rushed into the thick of battle and was himself killed. The Cimmerians made their way into a region of northern Anatolia, or remember Turkey today, called Phrygia, and captured the capital city of Phrygia, which was Gordian. The ruler of Gordium was Midas. Yes, that King Midas, Midas of the Golden Touch. No one literally believes that, of course. It may be a reference to the precious metal resources in the area and his own personal wealth that was derived from that. Midas is also said to have committed suicide once he saw that the Cimmerians were fated to take the city and that he would be their prisoner. Some accounts say that he took poison. Another one states that he drank bull's blood, which coagulated in his throat and suffocated or choked him. Not really sure if that would work. A similar story of suicide by drinking bull's blood was attributed to Themistocles, the Greek general who won the Battle of Salamis. And of course, Midas is said in other versions of the legend to have died differently. Aristotle said that he starved to death because of his golden touch. Everything he touched turned to gold and he couldn't eat or drink. We do know archaeologically that Gordian was destroyed roughly around this time period, so there could be some historical fact contained in these accounts. The Cimmerians continued their wars against the Assyrians. The Assyrian king Esar Haddon defeated them in 679 and killed one of their kings. The only Cimmerian names we have are a few royal names. The king in question here was named Tushpa. In 652, under a new king named Dugdame, the Cimmerians captured the town of Sardis. Sardis was the capital of yet another ancient kingdom called Lydia. Lydia's ruler at this time was King Gyges, who is said to have been killed in this assault. Gyges is mentioned in the work of the Greek historian Herodotus, sort of as the paradigm of a powerful eastern ruler, but not powerful enough to stand up to the Cimmerians. In 619, a descendant of Gyges, a ruler of Lydia named Aleates, whose burial mound can still be seen in the area close to Sardis today, is said to have defeated the Cimmerians pretty decisively. And the Roman writer Paulinus, who collects a number of military stratagems, describes how Aleates used trained war dogs in great enough numbers that they helped win the battle. Interestingly enough, we have evidence that the Lydians sacrificed dogs. The use of dogs was Polyanus' main focus, but he does go to the trouble of stating categorically that the Cimmerians were a monstrous and bestial tribe. The Cimmerians seem to vanish from history at this point. So all we really have are these various accounts, some written in Assyrian cuneiform, some written by Greek or Roman authors. Most historians feel that they were replaced by a later group called the Scythians. Now, as we come to the 4th century BC, the expedition led by Alexander the Great at one stage passing through northern Iran came very close to the Caspian Sea. And later legends developed that he had constructed a wall to protect the empire that he was in the process of building from fearsome tribes coming out of the steppes of Central Asia. The story shows up in many different contexts. One of them is in the so-called Romance of Alexander which I referenced in an earlier episode when I was talking about the story of the diving bell that Alexander supposedly used. Now, in the romance, which developed during the medieval period, it stated that there were two mountains called Breasts of the North, 
that moved closer to each other. The mountains literally moved at Alexander's command. He also ordered the construction of a wall made out of iron and copper, and it held terrible tribes at bay, people who ate cadavers and fetuses. What you have to realize is that many legends crept into the actual historical account of this real individual, Alexander the Great, and the military campaign, the conquest of the Persian Empire that he accomplished. There's another example coming from right around the same area and the same spot in the timeline of the expedition. And that's that while Alexander was in this region near the Caspian Sea, he got a visit from the queen of the tribe of the Amazons. Thalestris is how the name is cited in most sources, although there's variants of that. And she showed up with 300 female warriors and said that she wanted to have a child by Alexander. So Alexander and Thalestris spent 13 days and nights together. Nothing came of this. There's no further information on Thalestris or whether she had children or the Amazons in general. They do not appear in the story any further. So this near fortnight of zealous booty knocking, fun as it must have been for both of them, had no further significance. Historians feel the same way about the story of the wall as they do about the story of Thalestris and the Amazons. But the account may have been grafted onto actual constructions from later in ancient history. There are remnants of fortifications that have survived from later periods of ancient history on both sides of the Caspian Sea. At an area called the Caspian Gates near Durbant, which is in the Republic of Dagestan, which has the Caspian Sea on one side and the Caucasus Mountains on the other, there are remnants of a fortress and of a wall appears to date to the 6th century AD and was constructed by the Sasanian Persians. Oddly enough, its traditional name in several different languages translates to Gate of Iron. Many miles to the west, there's another pass through the Caucasus Mountains called the Dariel Pass at the border of Russia and Georgia. But many people also point to a wall in northeastern Iran near a region called Gorgon, which was discovered just a few decades ago. This is a stretch of wall that goes on for 120 miles and contains 30 different fortresses. It's made out of red mud bricks, so sometimes the wall is referred to locally as the Red Snake. Historians think it might have been built by the Parthians, the empire that existed before the Sasanian Persians, and that the Sasanians actually refurbished the wall. But only the Great Wall of China is a more extensive fortification wall. Now, who would the Sasanians be trying to keep out? Well, we know of several different tribal groups from Central Asia, the earliest of which are generally referred to as the Huns. Now, the most famous group of Huns in the Western world was the group that took over part of Eastern Europe, became enemies of the Romans in the 5th century AD under the leadership of Attila. But they weren't the only Huns. There was also a group that ravaged Central Asia, attacked the Sasanian Persians, and even made their way as far south as modern-day India and Pakistan. These are known as the Hephthalite Huns, or White Huns. No reference to ethnicity there. It's relating to the official color of the Kagan, or leader, the color he would use on his flags and banners. Procopius, the historian of the Byzantine Empire, says that the Hephthalite Huns were the only Huns who were not ugly. Kind of an odd statement. But they were major enemies of the Sasanians for a long time, inflicted several major defeats on them, including the Battle of Herat in 484, where the Sasanian king Peroz I was taken prisoner. Eventually, the Sasanians teamed up with Turkic tribes and defeated the Hephthalite Huns and ended their empire. 
The historical dates coincide enough that the Great Wall of Gorgon could be seen as having been built to protect that flank of the Sasanian Empire from the Heftalites. It's par for the course that people from settled empires tended to view these Central Asian nomads like the Hephthalite Huns as barbarians and less than human. Different variations on vermin actually appear in many of the sources, and it's very reminiscent of what is said about the peoples of Gog and Magog in the various legends. In China, the term for the group that is connected to the Huns, or might actually be an earlier version of them, is the Xiongnu. And the Xiongnu are characterized as not much better than insects in most Chinese sources. There's even a situation where a historian during the Han Dynasty, during the rule of the Emperor Wu, a man named Sima Xian, spoke up in favor of a general who had been defeated by the Xiongnu, had married into the Kagan's family, and had, in effect, joined the other side. And he was just being excoriated by everybody in the court. Well, Sima Xian spoke up in favor of him because he liked the guy, and that got him in a lot of trouble with the emperor. The emperor condemned him to death. And there were only two ways out of a death sentence at this time in China. You could pay a massive fine which there was no way Sima Xian would be able to afford. Or if you were a man, you could undergo castration. And he chose door number two on that one and suffered this terrible operation, chance of death by infection, and did it, he says, because he had not finished his great historical work, which we call in English the records of the grand historian. And he knew that this work of history was going to be what made his name immortal in later centuries. So he suffered that terrible pain and indignity so that he could complete his work. All procrastinators take note here. And you can see where these tangents will take us. You know, now I'm talking about some guy getting his sack detached. The later traditions of Alexander's Wall also go into great detail about the verminous hordes that were being kept at bay. These are creatures that scratch at the wall and during the end times will break through and cause great devastation before they are finally destroyed. In medieval Europe, they developed the idea that the group being kept at bay by Alexander's Wall were actually the lost tribes of Israel that were trying to rejoin fellow Jews in the Western world. And the culmination of all these ideas from the Alexander Romance, from the Bible, from various other early Jewish and Christian writings, it all comes together in something called the Letter of Prester John. Now, we do not know who produced this choice little item, but it shows up in 1165 in several European chronicles. Who is Prester John? The name is short for Presbyter John, the idea of a Christian religious leader. But he was a supposed king ruling over a large area of Central Asia and also a Christian. It might have been some garbled legacy of the stories of the Apostle Thomas traveling eastward all the way to India. And there actually is a group called the Thomas Christians in India today. But this letter is a real laugh riot. It's hard to believe that anybody took it seriously. Of course, in the Middle Ages in Europe, they used to burn cats because they thought they were spying on them for witches. It's Prester John addressing leaders in Europe, saying, There are 72 kings that pay tribute to me. 
They include rulers of the Ten Lost Tribes of Israel. He also mentions Gog and Magog and ten other strange names of exotic tribes that he groups together as cannibals, trapped behind mountains by Alexander the Great. Professor John claims that he can order those cannibal tribes to eat enemies of his who he goes to war with, but he predicts that during the end times they're going to break out, no explanation why he can't stop them from doing that, but they'll break out, overrun Europe, and cause great devastation before they are destroyed by heavenly fire. So that's the story we've been following through the whole episode, in a sense. And then the letter just kind of goes on tangents, and it gets a little psychedelic at times. He says that, oh, my kingdom has great riches, but no horses, but we don't miss the horses. Don't know why he happened to talk about that. He does mention that all kinds of exotic creatures can be found in his domain. Ogresses, as in female ogres, griffins, men with horns, Cyclopes, as in the race of the ancient Greek Cyclops, the bird called the phoenix, which immolates itself and then rises from its own ashes every few centuries, salamanders, meaning intelligent lizard creatures that live in fire, and silent grasshoppers. He seems to find that noteworthy. So you can almost imagine the writer cracking up, you know, dropping his quill as he writes on parchment. And as we get to the latter part of the Middle Ages, the 1200s, 13th century, it's the Mongols who become the new murderous hordes from the East. Under the leadership of Chinggis Khan, the Mongols began a massive series of conquests. And because they attacked Islamic governments in Central Asia and the Middle East, at first, medieval Christian Europeans thought that they might actually be led by a descendant of Prester John who they called King David, which doesn't sound like Genghis Khan at all to me. Once the Mongols started to kill Christians in Russia and Poland and parts of Eastern Europe, though, by the mid-1200s, the medieval Europeans pretty much divested themselves of this belief, and they moved the Prester John concept down to Ethiopia. But that seems to be the nature of prophecies. If they don't come true at the time that they're expected, they just get reinvented over and over again for new circumstances in different historical times. Gog and Magog continue to be reworked, reinvented for the modern world in the 20th century. Many people in the Western world thought Gog and Magog was the Soviet Union. With the Soviet Union now gone, new Gogs and Magogs will have to be devised. Thanks, everyone, and I'm looking forward to having you all back for the next episode of Ancient Weirdness with Gunnar Hauser.